Welcome to Homestead Gardening, a modern approach. Today we are talking all things seed saving, why you should be doing it, and how to get started. We are sharing our tips for avoiding dreaded cross-pollination and which seeds we think are easier and more difficult to save. Join your hosts, Kristen and Spencer, for inspiration to save your own seed and experience the full circle of gardening. This is Homestead Gardening, a modern approach with your hosts, Kristen and Spencer, where we garden alongside Mother Nature, sprinkle in a touch of modern science, and put up the abundance. Kristen's Trial Garden is located in Houston, Texas. In addition to general horticulture knowledge, Kristen's decade of experience growing in the Gulf Coast will provide additional insight into navigating this climate. Spencer is growing her family's produce in California's Central Valley. She uses her one acre urban homestead to help others bless their tables with homegrown, homemade food. You know, I have only started saving my seeds um, a little over a year now. And I don't think that I understood not only how important it was to save my own seeds, but what value that was to me. Um, and my husband really didn't understand that either. When he saw me seed saving on a regular basis over the summer, he told me, he goes, I don't understand why you're trying to save a buck. And I go, no, it's, it's bigger than that. Um, so I'd love to ask you, Spencer, why do you save your own seeds? You know, that's funny you say that because I'm in the exact same situation. I didn't get into this until like the last year or so. Um, and I think for me, it started for a different reason. So in the last few years, we've seen things in the gardening industry that I personally never thought we would see. So within the last few years, we've seen complete seed shortages. And I really had this like aha moment that my garden needs to be self-sustaining for me, not a hundred percent, but I at least need to have something that's able to keep going. So I at least wanted to know how it's not necessarily that I'm going to save every seed in my garden every year, especially because I grow a lot of varieties. It's not, it's not the best use of my time, but I needed to know how in case I ever, ever needed to do it again. So I think that was my biggest, like I needed to feel secure. I, I definitely understand that self-sufficiency angle um, and the experiential angle. The For me, there was a, a big uh, survival mindset drive um, to a lot mm -hmm. of the things that I do with gardening. And for some reason, seed saving just came a lot later in the process. Um, there is a cost-effective side to it. So in, in yeah. on some level, you're not just saving a buck by seed saving. In my case, I saved probably closer to $300. Uh, this year, which is pretty substantial. I still spent maybe a yeah. hundred because I was still incorporating a few new varieties and trying a few things out and things that didn't work last year. I wanted to give them a second shot since we had drought and other variables that maybe had nothing to do with the seed quality or the vegetable quality. Um, but I have a pretty big garden. So, you know, for me, saving $300, that's pretty significant. I was able to invest in yeah. fertilizers, uh, better soils, expansion. You know, there's a lot of value there for me, but for me, it was really, the seed saving was about 
improving the seed quality, improving the resilience of that variety and specialize um, my garden for my own climate. Yeah, that's true. I, I don't think a lot of people realize that that happens. So when you're saving your own seed, it becomes adapted over time to your specific garden. So like Kristen just said, if you're saving a seed, it's going to be improved and more resilient for a drought climate or a cold tolerant, early early blooming, whatever it is that you're breeding for unintentionally or intentionally is going to adapt to your microclimate. Exactly. Um, and then, you know, in general, you talked about having all these different types of varieties. Um, I too might not save from every variety, but I might save something that really impresses me. Uh, for example, mm -hmm. I had a heavy hitter okra and I was watching and watching and watching this okra grow. And I thought, well, that plant's pretty good. That plant's pretty good. And then I just had the perfect um, plant, the one that really uh, met the name heavy hitter that you know was multi-branch, had perfect pods, um, didn't seem to have any pests on it compared to the others. So I just decided, well, I don't eat that much okra, but I'm going to save from this because if I do want to plant again, I want the most resilient for my garden. So, right. so I seed saved just for the heck of kind of being a scientist and saying, well, will this do so, so well next year? Um, which is what, mm -hmm. what, when we buy seeds, that's what other growers have done for us. They've saved and saved mm -hmm. and saved from the best of the best of the best, not just to maintain that genetic species um, and that heritage line, but to give you the best of that line, the you know breeding for genetics within that variety. And then for me personally, you know, what I grow is different than what I can buy from the grocery store. So a lot of my seed saving um, is more rare seeds or things that I wouldn't be able to find at a big box store if I just grabbed a pack mm -hmm. off the shelf. So I'm also trying to think through what do I want to feed my own body with and what do I want to always have on hand um, so I get the most nutritional value from my garden. Right. So how would somebody in your mind, how how did would somebody start learning how to seed save? Besides listening to this podcast, like what did you do? I mean, I guess technically I got started, we'll use that term very loosely, uh, seed saving before I actually did it. So a lot of times like my wildflowers would go to seed if I didn't harvest them and I would see it and I would just be like, Oh, okay. I'll let it reseed itself because you know, it's just out there. It's not, it's not something I'm growing intentionally, but it's pretty. And um, so I did that and like, just not even thinking about it for a couple of years. And then I think it was last year I had celery that bolted and just totally got away from me. And before I knew it, it was setting seed. And I was like, okay, well, I didn't have to do anything. Like I might as well let it just finish off. And at that point I was partially curious because I'm like, how does celery grow? What does a celery flower look like? What does a celery, you know, like I had only pretty much bought starts at that point. So I was just like, now I'm curious. Right. So I just let it go and would, you know, ran the process out. And then once I saw how easy it was, I, and then the whole self-sufficiency thing, like I talked about, I started to realize like, oh, okay, this is something I can do. 
So I started to research more and more into it. And I found two books that I really liked because I don't know, I feel like learning to seed save from the internet is awesome, but I really wanted to make sure that I had like a tactile resource. So I wasn't constantly like looking up a blog or a YouTube video or something like that. Like I wanted a hard print resource for this, especially because I do think it was, I think it's so important to know. Um, so I found two books that I really like that we can share and link to in the show notes. Um, the Seed Garden, Garden, excuse me, by the Seed Savers Exchange. And the second book that I really like is The Complete Guide to Saving Seeds. And these have amazing pictures if you're looking for a resource. Oh, I love uh, the visual aid. That's so yeah. important. Um, I have a what about super, you? well, I actually started getting into seed saving for the weirdest reason. I started hybridizing, um, crossing my roses. And that got me thinking about these heirloom plants I was growing and preventing cross-pollination. Um, right. So we'll t- I know we're talking about that a little bit later in this episode, but the I, I was, I actually started for a completely different reason. I was actually manipulating my plants uh, and crossing them. And then I was like, oh, wait, I actually really want to maintain these heritage heirlooms that are so rare and so interesting. And especially after I tasted some of the food and I thought, well, I really want to have this again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I, I got started. I, I mean, I already have a background in botany and horticulture. And so I didn't buy any resources or really go looking anywhere. I just kind of, went for it. And then all of my right. cool season plants, like you said, the celery, lettuce, um, broccolis, mustard, they all bolted last year. We had a very, uh, warm winter again, warm spring season. And so they bolted right away. And that just gave me opportunity. I didn't do anything right. for those cold season seeds. I do manipulate a lot more for my warm. I do have to control that a little bit more. Uh, because I grow so many of the same varieties, but with the cool season, I only had one of each. I knew there wasn't going to be any crossing for the most part. Um, and they were all blooming at different times, which was really functional. Um, so it was easy. It was just convenient, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think that's very important when you start thinking about seed saving, if it's inconvenient, don't do it. <laughs> just <laughs> do what's really easy for you. Um, And then since I started seed saving, I've been connecting with other local gardeners and trading seeds a lot more. Um, So I don't save all my seeds. I connect and I ask, you know, what worked well for you this year in my local area Mm -hmm. and swap seeds with other gardeners that had a variety or had something that was different for them um, that worked better for their garden. And I ask them, how did you grow this? That way I grow in the same conditions and I'm, you know, doing what's best for that plant whatever seed they chose to save. Um, but connecting with local growers or local, you know, other local gardeners also got me uh, linked into seed saving libraries locally. And so now I'm able to give and take uh, from those as well. And those gardeners are going to have tips. You're going to meet gardeners of all experiential levels when you start connecting locally that can guide you and give you additional advice from just experience. I think that's so good to hear because I think for me, a huge part of the seed saving that I did not anticipate was like this emotional experience. It's like this full circle of gardening. I just had this aha moment that I completed the loop and like, I finally understood like, 
oh, this is why people do this because I'm the same thing. Like if it's a hassle, I'm I'm not going to do it. I don't have time for that. But it was just so cool to see it through and like truly understand the full life cycle of nature and how it's going to work. Even if I'm not there, I think it was really cool. And another reason to try it if you haven't already. That's a great point. I, I will say when I'm, I'm, I'm sitting right next to my seed packs right now, cause they hang up next to my desk. So I can always be thinking gardening in my little <laughs> five minute breaks during my work day. When I, lo- I used to love looking at the pictures on the seed packs and getting so excited. And now I like digging through my bag of Ziploc baggies of seeds that I've saved and going, <laughs> That's how mine are I did this, me, I did this. And I can, I don't have them labeled. I reckon, I know each, each one, because I, I know what my seed looks like. I know what my seedling looks like. I, I do know every stage of life of these plants, but when I go and plant this season, so it's been just about a year, maybe a little over with some of these seed savings. Um, when I go out and look at the seedlings that are out there now, knowing that 90% of what's out there is truly mine. I saved it last year. I'm growing it now. Um, there's of course a hundred more plants than I need because I had so much extra seed. I didn't feel like I was pinching pennies, you know, when I had to plant them out. It just feels great. Like it's so rewarding. It's so like, it's such a pat. On, I gave myself a pat on the back. Um, emotionally speaking, like, oh, I did so good today. You know, I just, I, and that's what I did this morning before we um, started recording this. I went out in the garden and I had thrown out all of these seeds of lettuce and cilantro and dill, like extra that I harvested last year. And it was just to have a covering. I didn't have enough time to grow a real cover crop. I just needed a smattering of something while other plants were getting established. And I chose kind of that interim season uh, grouping of plants for myself. And I went into the walking paths and just started digging up the walking path seedlings that came up in that throw out um, and then added them to my pots in the front yard. So I had like my, I needed some filler for my thriller filler spiller in my pots just went and grabbed the lettuce and the cilantro Mm -hmm. and the dill, which is perfect because they're getting, um, they're, they're going to have a short season since we're getting so warm out in that full sun spot. And now they're getting moved to a part shade spot where they're going to have a little bit longer life. And they're just free fillers for my decorative pots in the front yard. So I mean, I don't know. I just love that. I love that. And I'm sure my husband doesn't even know how much he loves that because my my flowers that I buy in spring <laughs> probably cost us hundreds of dollars. And now I'm replacing those for brightly colored lettuce and, you know, the texture of dill and cilantro instead, which will go to flower too and, and be really pretty. Um, so mm-hmm. over the next several months, I'm saving us so much more money than I can truly calculate, um, which feels great too. Yeah. We, I mean, we did kind of touch on the fact that it is cost-effective to save your own seed, especially things like the larger seeds, like rare varieties of pumpkins or squash that you get like less per packet because you're going to get way more seeds from what you can actually save than you will ever get in a packet. Um, and two, like you just said, the, the physical amount, like one cilantro plant can give you coriander seeds for your kitchen and one cilantro plant saving seed from would be the equivalent of buying like five or six packets. So you're, it's hard to quantify the exact dollars you're saving, but I promise you it is more cost-effective to save your own seed. 
Absolutely. It's, it's really incredible. Um, and maybe it's only a few dollars here and there for some people, but when you really go and think about it and you start expanding the way that you, um, just think about gardening and thinking about, like I said, my front yard decorative space, um, my husband was so funny. I, I, he, he likes to have flowers in the front yard. I have no idea why. Cause I'm never, I never travel in and out of the house, but he does more than I do. <laughs> and he wants to come home to something pretty. Um, so hilarious. And so, and it's only in the spring and summer and fall when we have the longer daylight hours in the afternoon. Um, he doesn't care about it in the winter <laughs> when it's already dark out or whatever, when he gets home. So he's so funny. And I was like, well, I don't really want to buy flowers, take care of them, all these different things. And so he's perfectly fine with me using vegetable plants or whatever. And so I grew extra peppers this year from saved seeds. I had all these extra pepper seeds, which also come in really limited quantities in the packs. And he goes, why don't you put them in the front yard? I thought, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can do that. That makes, I mean, that's weird, but if I rethink, (laughs) but I'm here for it. (laughs) Yeah. If I rethink about color and texture and interest, those are going to have brightly colored peppers. They're going to, you know, they're going to last from spring to summer to fall, unlike flowers, which usually have a shorter season. Um, yeah, this is a great idea. So I'm trying to expand the way that I think about plants and landscape and gardening and just be smarter about the whole situation and, and use what I have instead of buying what I don't have, you know? That's definitely what seed saving will get you into. Yeah. To be warned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You will start using cilantro as a shrub plant in your front yard. No problem. Um, and, and your HOA won't know the difference. Okay. That's all that really matters. If you're, if, I've had so many people reach out to me and say, I'm growing up like almost like a whisper, but over text, you know, that feeling. And, and it's like, I'm, yeah. growing, I'm growing vegetables in my front yard. My HOA doesn't know. And I'm like, good for you. Stick it to the man. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's so, funny. So the question I'm sure on everybody's mind at this point, I'm sure, you know, you're getting excited and salivating over having vegetables in your front yard. Now, what seeds can you save Spencer? I mean, I mean, what, what can we do? What- so, and I'm actually asked this question a lot, so it's great. So technically you can save the seed from anything, whether or not you're going to get the plant that you wanted is the answer that you really should be asking for. <laughs> so there's in the seed world, there's heirloom seeds and hybrid seeds. Hybrid does not mean GMO because that's also a commonly misconstrued topic that we won't go down today. <laughs> but essentially what an heirloom seed is, is a pure variety that has been passed down usually over generations, there's like a certain time period that has to be met in order to be classified as an heirloom seed. There are plants that are heirlooms that just haven't met that time qualification yet, which is confusing. Um, But you want to make sure if you're trying to save seed, you're saving seed from an heirloom or an open pollinated plant. Hybrids, like I said, they're not GMOs, but what they are are the cross between two plants that's done on purpose for a specific result. So usually it's like disease resistance or early blooming, uh, low bolt tolerance, whatever it is. If you save seeds from a hybrid, you're going to get one of the parent plants simply because of the way the genetics work. 
So you physically can save the seed from hybrid, but it's not going to be the plant that you thought it was. Yeah. Essentially the hybrid genetics have not been stabilized. Um, like the heirloom plant seed has been stabilized with genetics. So it has a reversion habit to go back to one of the parents. Um, I don't know which parent that is. Maybe it's the mother. Uh, maybe it doesn't matter. But the point is when you buy a hybrid seed, you pay a premium for that because you are buying it for whatever genetic qualities the, the breeder cross that, that plant for. So, um, hybrid vigor or whatever that might be better performance. And so when it reverts, you're losing the hybrid vigor or the better performance that it was bred for. So you're paying a premium for these hybrid seeds originally. And by saving them, you're losing that value in the first place. So there's nothing wrong with saving the hybrid seeds, but you're not going to get improved performance from your plants the way you would if you saved your heirloom seeds. Right. So if I was on the lookout for some easy seeds to save today, or at least if I was going to look at my garden, look at the plants in my garden and figure out which ones I want to pay attention to, which plants are easier to save seeds from? So for me, the easiest things to say, save and what I would definitely recommend that people start with are most herbs. So like your basil, cilantro, parsley, those are super easy. You honestly just let them go. Uh, flowers, zinnias, wildflowers, sweet peas, and some vegetables, uh, things like beans, peas. I'm sure there's a few more I'm forgetting, but that's where I would start. Yeah. I, I really love to save from the legume family. There's so many uh, across the seasons from that family. Um, like you said, your beans, peas, uh, the hairy vetch cover crop, peanuts, um, the mallow family is really easy too, because all of their seeds come in pods. Um, and then you mentioned basil and a lot of the herbs, a lot of herbs come from the mint family. So it just seems like in general, the mint family is a really easy one too. There are so many others. So we'll include that in a blog post or something like that. So you can get a little bit better comprehensive list. Um, but those are definitely super easy to do. I think with all of those two, even if you are thinking like, oh, I might want to start this, but you still might want to chicken out at the, at the last minute, <laughs> that's totally okay. All of those plants in the interim when they're flowering and being pollinated are amazing for beneficial insects and serve a purpose at that stage too. So don't worry if something happens and you don't actually get to save the seed like you intended on, it's still contributing to the health of your garden. Yeah. If you really aren't into seed saving, letting those go to flower. And then as soon as they're done flowering, the seeds aren't going to be fully formed when they, even when you start to see them or see the pods forming, they're not fully formed. Mm -hmm. So they're not going to cause a problem in your compost pile. If at that time you want to chop the plant at the base and throw it in the compost pile, if you need the space, or if you really do not want to save more seeds. In my case, I don't really want to save more mustard seeds. I have a bucket load. Uh, from last year. <laughs> so I probably won't let that flower. And, and sometimes if you leave something there in your garden too long, like we've talked about in our trap plant episodes, something like a mustard, leaving that too long in the garden to, to save seeds from is disadvantageous. I actually had to do more pest control to get those pests 
off of my mustard and keep from breeding and uh, overpopulating into next year. So I needed to cut that plant down before it formed seeds. And that's what I have to do this year. I'm going to have to think through which is going to take me more time. And in this case, you know, that mustard's a, a good trap crop, an amazing trap crop, but I don't want those extra beetles. I don't want that extra work. So, you know, we can think about this in a few different ways too. We don't yeah. always need to save seeds. <laughs> so if you're listening and you do want to save one of the seeds that we talked about that are just being easy, I want you to know that they're easy to save because of the way the seed is formed in the pod. And that's what's going to make this so easy for you. Essentially, all you have to do is dry them and collect them. Like there's no nothing else to it. Exactly. And if you live in a climate that um, is more humid, like Houston, or you have a rainy season when you want to collect these seeds, which we do during the perfect seed saving time for all of our cool season crops in Houston, uh, you can use something like a dehydrator and put it on the lowest setting and help those pods dry out a little bit once you know. That oh, really? Could, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, because interesting. I've never heard that. Yeah. There, um, last year we had a, the rain come at the exact same time that all my lettuce were ready to harvest. And so it was making it extremely difficult, um, not just to harvest, but if they didn't dry out fast enough, they mildewed. Um, and so we had a huge problem in the house with that. I'm very allergic. So I had to be careful and just simply putting the pods or, or the lettuce seeds or anything in the dehydrator really for 30 minutes, maybe an hour at the most on lowest setting took care of a lot of those problems. Oh, interesting. So I just chopped the plant at the base and like put it upside down in a brown paper bag and then let it sit in the garage till my husband tell me tells me it's in his way. <laughs> yeah. And we can't do that because of the mildew. So yeah, that's that little extra. I know it's, it's, it seems yeah. like too much work, but it's not that little bit of extra just goes a long way. Interesting. Well, there's what I learned for the day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we've talked about what's easy. What would be something that's more difficult for you to save Kristen? Anything that's going to easily cross pollinate or a plant that's biennial. So for a lot of climates, carrots are biennial. Um, what does that mean? Will you, yeah, will you explain that. what that means? So biennial means that so most plant, most garden plants are annual. They begin to grow in the season that they're growing and they finish, which means they produce fruit or flower uh, or seed or whatever in that same season. So that might be three, six, eight months, but it's not spanning over one year's time span. A plant that's biennial will finish its life cycle over two years. So it won't actually flower until year two or whatever it thinks year two is. Now, in certain climates, Houston's one of them, warmer climates, they tend to break the rules and biennials may finish their life cycle in six to eight months. If you start in like September or October, when you plant, let's use the carrot as an example, uh, if you plant a carrot at that time, if they don't properly form the vegetable, they may finish their cycle in late spring where they the plant believes it's already gone through two years time frame because of the way the seasons, um, the, the temperatures fluctuate. It may finish its life cycle in six to eight months later in the spring and flower at that time. And that's what happens with me with some carrots. If we have an unusual winter last year, all of my carrots went to flower and really didn't produce a great root but that gave me an opportunity to collect a bunch of seeds. So that was cool. And I use those for seed swaps. Most people hear annual and perennial. 
but biennial is not commonly thrown around unless you're seed saving. So what would be an example other than carrots? What else would be biennial? So a lot of the root vegetables, I don't know if necessarily all of them, but a lot of the root vegetables tend to form a root their first year. And then they use that root energy to produce seeds in their second year. So um, that might be uh, kohlrabi, onion, turnip, beets. Um, you know, of course, I already mentioned carrots. Then you have some similar plants like your Brussels sprouts, your Swiss chard, you know, uh, celery, kale. It seems to be a lot of the plants in a cool season family of crop um, that will be, have a biennial habit. Not all, but quite a few tend to be in, not in the warm climate. And correct me if I'm wrong, considered more difficult because of the time, right? Not because of the actual technique. Yeah, they're, they're not, it's not difficult to save these seeds. You just have to give them space in the garden for a longer period of time, which may mean that you're doing more pest control for a longer period of time. My carrots got a lot of beetles, for instance, while I waited them to, for them to flower and seed. And that might be frustrating for gardeners. So if you don't have the space or uh, for that length of time to leave them as a biennial and you don't need the seeds, by all means, take them out, you know, or if you want to, if you're using those crops for roots, not for the seeds, by all means, take them out. So what would be another example of things that are difficult, not because of time? So I guess where I'm going with this is preventing cross-pollination can be difficult. Yeah. So let's talk about, let's talk about other things that are difficult because they cross-pollinate. Yeah. Cross-pollinators are going to be usually, um, cross-pollinating happens within the same family. And so I think the biggest offenders of cross-pollination for most people tend to be in that squash gourd family, uh, the cucurbit mm -hmm. family. And I think you would agree with that. that oh that's yeah. The Pumpkins, offender. winter squash, melons, cucumbers, summer squash, all of that is going to yeah. be. And those are things that people want to save. And yeah. I think they don't realize especially if you're just like, oh, I'm going to save seeds from my zucchini. You're not going to realize it on the fruit that you're eating that summer. Yeah. You're going to realize it next summer when you planted that seed that you saved. And then it's some mystery veg that's probably not edible. And I think and that's where most people go wrong and get like a bad taste for seed saving. It, exactly. And if you cross pollinate if, or accidentally cross pollinate a broccoli or a trying to think like a Swiss chard, you're not going to notice if you have a little variation in that taste wise, but you will absolutely notice it in a pumpkin. If you have a really um, poorly textured pumpkin result from the cross in the second year, you're not going to be able to use that for the puree that you want. It's going to be maybe too stringy. Um, so the taste and the texture that will all drastically change in the cucurbit family, or maybe it wouldn't for another family of plant. Um, so I think that that's cross-pollination is, is the biggest um, concern with seed saving for sure from that family. Right. Which we'll talk a little bit later about how to avoid that and how to save pure seed, because I do think that's so important, especially mm -hmm. all of those veggies that we just mentioned are super popular. That's what people do want. Um, especially have those continue to go, those can be vital things to your food supply. So we'll talk a little bit about that later. And um, as far as other things that are, I don't want to say these are super difficult, but they require a little more finesse, a little more work would be things that require you to ferment the seed. 
mm-hmm. which we're going to talk a little bit more about that later too, but what would be some examples about that? Yeah. So seeds that as a best practice, you should ferment would be like tomato, goji, pepper, eggplant. They happen to be nightshades uh, from the nightshade family. And then maybe other berries, things with pulp or um, a, a fleshy covering over them, which the cucurbit family also has. Um, fermenting is the best practice for all of those which makes them a little bit more finicky, maybe to seed save correctly. And we're going to talk more about fermenting in part two of this discussion. So y'all will hear about that in the future. Um, don't overthink fermenting. You can absolutely see these, save these seeds without fermenting um, too, but fermenting improves germination, which is why we will, t- we will cross that bridge <laughs> eventually. Yeah. Yeah. So these, what we've just mentioned it's still not a difficult process. So I don't want you listening. Like, I don't want you to be scared to try this. It's just a little bit more labor intensive. And sometimes that may or not may or may not pencil out for you as far as what's worth your time. Yeah. It's might not be a realistic process for everybody. Um, it's definitely worth trying once. And, and like I said, episode or part two, we'll talk about that. Um, now preventing cross-pollination um, I think is if, if you're seed saving only if you're seed saving, I think it's worth the time to do a little manual labor to prevent cross-pollination. If you're in a seed, seed, seed saving mindset with some of those cucurbits, can you explain, um, maybe how to prevent cross-pollination with some of those plants? Yeah. So there's, there's different ways you can prevent cross-pollination. So we can prevent cross-pollination with isolation techniques by only growing one variety. Um, if you're in town and your next door neighbor has a backyard, that might not work for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just keep that in mind. Uh, we can also isolate, I think I, I think I said with distance, right? Um, yeah. Which depending on your property size, that may or may not be an option, but for sure, every gardener can isolate with like a bag and tag or a row cover technique because you have manual control over that environment. Right. Absolutely. And if you are going to try to preserve your um, genetics, the way that you cross pollinate, of course, cucurbit family plants have male and female flowers. So all you have to do got early in the morning before your bumblebees wake up, um, you know, they're that kind of perfect uh, morning hour is always beautiful, a beautiful time to even be in your garden. So you'll enjoy this process. You go find your male flower that's opening that day, remove all of its petals so that it's just really easy to handle and the pollen's present. And then you're going to want to um, go find your female flower that's open that day. So it's fresh and remove its petals. You can literally just pop them on top of each other so that they're kind of wedged in between each other and then bag it. You don't have to paint, you know, you don't have to grab a paintbrush and, you know, paintbrush on the pollen. It's not that, it's not that complicated. The male flower later that day will release its pollen naturally. It doesn't do it in the morning. So you can't paintbrush it right at that moment. Um, It'll release naturally. And that bag is just preventing other insects from running around, messing up your work. Alternatively, you can pick your male flower the day before, remove the petals, put it on a little 
um, like let's say you don't have a female flower open. This is the only reason to do this. Take your male flower the day before, take away its petals. So it's not, they're not in your way, put it on a little piece of uh, plastic wrap or whatever works for you, paper towel, and it will release its pollen that day. And the pollen will be good for 24 hours. Take that male flowers pollen out the next day. And that's where you see people paint brushing the pollen on, but really just rub that towel, that paper towel onto the female flower that's opened that day and bag it. And it's really that simple. It's not, it's not hard. You just have to think through how the pieces of the flower are working and beat the insects to your female flower. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not too hard. And what are you using to, because I hear that and I think it's block bag, but I know that's not the answer. So, so tell me what you would use to prevent other insects from getting in there. Um, I like to use, um, tiny little Ziploc baggies, like teeny tiny. Um, there's little like, Oh, really? Okay. Baggies. See, and I would think you can use, you can use plastic wrap I... and like, a uh, the twist tie from the grocery store. You can reuse those baggies. You know, the ones you get your produce in that are really thin. You can just cut them up to the size that you need. And then the twist tie, you know, that you brought your produce home in. Um, and you only need to have that covered up the female flower covered up for about 24 to 48 hours. And then you take the bag off at that time, the female is no longer able to accept pollen. Um, and it's already accepted the pollen that it chooses to accept. And it does not matter if insects bother it. So it's just a short, oh, interesting. A short yeah. And I learned this all okay. from hybridizing roses. I didn't just, I, I didn't just know this. It's not obvious. Um, this is something I specifically learned hybridizing roses. So it's a cool, it's an interesting, it's, it's a fun, it's so fun to do with kids, the kids who are old enough to understand what's happening. It's so fun to do with kids. Um, it's really rewarding. They still get their fruit. Um, and you can even be really choosy. So I only do this with fruit that I know will get really large. So if you look at the at cucurbit family of plants, the female flowers will have a tiny version of the fruit, of the mature fruit on the backside. So if you look at, for example, a butternut squash female flower, it has a little teeny butternut squash at the base of the female flower and they're different sizes. So if you want to save seeds, you only save seeds from the plumper, bigger female base. So, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to save seeds on a tiny female flower because you're not going to get a big fruit and you're not going to get a lot of seeds. You want to pick that bigger fruit, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I'm learning so much right now. Um, so I would have assumed from, like I said, in the very beginning of this episode, why this is possibly not the best thing to learn from blogs on the internet. <laughs> I thought I would have assumed that that bag had to stay on there for longer and that using a Ziploc bag would cause like moisture because it needs to breathe and it's going to get humid in there and be a hot mess. So I've always seen people use like an organza type of bag. That works too. Um, that, ha that has like the little drawstring, but I totally would have left it on there for longer. Yeah, you could. And, and if, if the organza bag is something that you have lying around, I just don't. Um, then use the Ziploc or whatever you have handy and you don't have to um, like strangle, you know, and zip tie it. So, so, or zip tie it, tie it so tight that it builds up a ton of moisture. You can just set the bag over 
if one insect gets in, you're not going to have the big bumblebee with the, you know, um, massive amount of pollen on its legs, you know, getting in there. You might have a little fly or something, but you're not going to have too much disruption to your seed saving if one little thing gets in. Um, but yeah, there's, there's such a short window where the, the male flower is able to release its pollen and the pollen is fresh. And that window is very short. It's more like 18 hours. Um, it releases it like within six of opening. And then it's only good for, you know, 24 total hours, but the female flower is only able to accept for so long. And once she's accepted the pollen, that process is done, you know, and you, and we can move on. Um, interesting. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's definitely fun. Very cool. But I will see, say, I'm learning too. <laughs> I, I will say growing one variety at a time is the easiest. It requires no intervention from you. The insects will do all the work for you. And so if you have the luxury of succession planting, you can plant your different variety at a different flowering time. You can just simply oh, yeah. remove female flowers um, on a vine. Some of your bigger pumpkins, you really only want to have one fruit per vine anyways. You can remove um, excess. Um, there's there's different things that you can utilize, um, other techniques, just to make your life a little easier because uh, normal pollination methods are perfectly fine for those. You don't have to go to some scientific, you know, crazy, uh, you, you don't have to go, you don't have to go overboard is my point. Right. If you're only saving from one variety. Yeah. Ready for and that closer? doesn't mean, oh, sorry. Oh, no, no finish, finish. Sorry. I was, <laughs> was going to say that might look like you're only growing one variety for some things like the, the melons and the pumpkins that we talked about. But if you're going towards like a radish or something like that, that you're trying to seed save, you can still grow multiple varieties of radish, as long as you're not letting them all flower. So it's, it's by what is flowering at the same time, which is why you can do it with the, the time isolation, like Kristen mentioned. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, that was part one of two episodes on seed saving. Yes, we have so much information to share. We are splitting this into a two-parter. We really hope that this episode has inspired you to experiment with seed saving in your garden this year. Seed saving makes your garden more resilient and opens the doors to seed swaps and sharing your garden's abundance with others. In the part two episode coming soon, we'll continue with this topic to discuss seed saving techniques, our seed saving tips, and cleaning and storing recommendations. Fun fact, Kristen and I actually met through an online seed swap. If you'd like to learn more with visual resources, I have a highlight on my Instagram at thefarbinthetable.co with lots of slides on the topic and videos from other creators breaking down how to save each specific type of seed. If you would like to participate in my annual seed swap, the wait list is open for next year and you can sign up for that with the link in the episode description. Seed saving truly adds so much to your experience in the garden. The flowering stage supports beneficial insects and you reap the reward a second time with seeds for next year. We'll talk more on this topic next time, but until then, happy gardening. <laughs>